Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Loyalty to Rangers is what binds us. And together, we are stronger. Launching for the 2021 season, the MyJers membership program is a new way to get even closer to the club you love. It's the one place where you can access benefits like ticketing priority, club discounts, and exclusive competitions and experiences. There's even a limited edition welcome gift when you join. Visit rangers.co.uk slash myjers to join today. Always Rangers. Always loyal. Always rewarded. Jones delivers. Just brace yourself. Rangers, 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 easy, okay. Okay. Well, the fans are very strong. You know, we've got a battle fever on, but the fans are Rangers to win the game. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the second episode of our famous fan series. And today we're joined by a successful... Um, author, ex-journalist, who has wrote a fair few uh, books on Rangers legends in the past. It's um, Jeff Holmes. Jeff, good afternoon. Hi, Scott. How are you? Not bad, mate. Yourself? I'm good. I'm good, thanks. been a, a difficult wee time recently, isn't it? But I suppose it's perfect for writing books. That's it. <laughs> Our damn podcast. Hi. <laughs> um, basically, Jeff, we're going to talk a wee bit about your... Um, kind of early career as a journalist, bringing it up to obviously focusing on the books that you've wrote and the stories that maybe you've found kind of gathering the, the information for, for your books. Um, I've read up and it said that you were born in Maryhill, brought up just a wee stone's throw from uh, For Hill For Thrills, 
um, yet you somehow managed to find your way to Ibrox. How did that come about? I was born, born across the road for Firhill and my, my entire family were, were thistle. Thistle men, as you can imagine, my two brothers and my, my dad and that. And I used to go across to Firhill when I was about 10. I used to go across and try and get lifted over or, or get in a half no 20 minutes to go when they opened the gates. Uh, I think Thistle were in the second division at the time. They had a decent team with jo- uh, Bobby Laurie and Jimmy Bone and Dennis McQuaid and all these guys. And and it was, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't really take too much notice, to be honest, but I remember a, a, a mate of mine, met, meeting a, a mate of mine in Mary Hill Road one night outside the trippy, and Friday night, and he says to me he was going to the match tomorrow, was I going? And I says, aye, I says, I'll probably go. He says, I says, uh, what time are you what time are you going to be there? And he went, oh, we're leaving, the bus is leaving at one o'clock. And I said, oh, for fifth hour? And he says, no, he says, Somerset Park in here. He says, Rangers are playing it here. So I thought I'd go and I'd get money off my mum and I went. And uh, I, th- I think Rangers won 2-1. I think I was about 10. And I don't really remember much about it. I, was, I hadn't really taken a, a growth spot at that time and I was still quite mean. I couldn't see much. I think I played in the sand at the back of the, the, back of the tennis. <laughs> but on the way home, on the way home, it, it was a John Greg Loyal bus for Mary Hill. And on the way home, I won the raffle. Uh, I won a pound, which was unbelievable, 1970 <laughs> or 71, whenever it was. And uh, in fact, I was out for, I was out with my wife and I were out for a meal with her cousin and a uh, boyfriend about six months ago. And he says to me, we started talking about, you know, football and stuff. And he says to me, when did you start going to see Rangers? I says, when I was 10. I say, he says, did you see Mary Hill? I says, aye. He says, you didn't go in the John Greg Loyal, but he says, did you win the sweep when the bus going air was? <laughs> I looked at this guy, it's about 40, 45 years ago, and he says, I said, he went, look at that little shanks won the sweep. He says, look, he says, we're, we're, we're gasping for money. He says, what's he going to spend it on? <laughs> and, this was, and this was him getting away back to, back to these times. And I, and I must admit, I thoroughly I enjoyed, the whole, enjoyed the whole thing. But a few weeks later, I went to Hamden. My mum, dad, two brothers went to Hamden to see Thistle play, take on Celtic in the League Cup final. And we all got wee flags and we were in the main stand and we had wee Thistle flags and I must admit, that was a great day. You know, my, my older brother was in the, with the Thistle fans in the Rangers and uh, well, the Celtic fans get wet in the uncovered, uncovered terrace and get four goals put by them in the first half. And to be fair, that should have kind of sealed the deal for Thistle, but no, I was... I was a Rangers fan, that was it. And, and um, I mean, for home games, me and, me and a couple of mates would just walk through Mary Hill over to Ibrox, you know, just walk, leave 12 o'clock, made a day of it, and then go get to the match and then walk home. And it was just, that was just magical, even even in those days, 1970, 71. So who, who was kind of the, the main features then of that team? Who were the mainstays of that Rangers team at that time? <sighs> they'd say, they'd just, Alec McDonald was one of my favourite players. He did same time a couple of years earlier for St Johnson, uh, uh, Colin Jackson, I really like Colin Jackson the centre half, but but probably my main main my main two players were, were Dave Smith, who the who was a left half kind of midfield player, which was just probably one of the most elegant players I've ever seen in my life. In fact, I was asked to do a two thousand word story this week for one of the papers on Rangers triumph in Barcelona, uh, and it was just I, I remember writing about Dave Smith. In the semi-final over over Munich, when Bayern Munich were pounding Rangers, you know, in the first leg at, at their ground, and it was just the the, the Bayern fans apparently 
were, were cheering Smith because when the ball went into the box, he would always try and take it out of the box, not just put it up the park like most people would do. And he was just one of these guys always trying to find a Rangers player. He did a, a one for a left foot and he was, bearing in mind, he'd just come back for two broken legs as well. So he was he was, he was was some some player. Uh, but Colin Steen was probably my favourite. He he shades it because he scored a lot of goals, but he was also he was a good rough and tumble, rough and tumble centre forward. He gets stuck in a bit like a bit like Mark Haley. Maybe he was never frightened. The end, you know, he gets stuck in, scored a lot of goals, left Rangers, but then come back and won us the league at Easter Road, which was in the packed terrace in that day. Easter Road, it was just ah, great day, Scott. Great days. Right. I can imagine. I can Do you have any memories of the Cup Winners' Cup final? My memories of the Cup Winners' Cup final are that was, I, was, I was 11, so obviously too young to go to the match. But I sat in the house, they, they, I, th- I think they showed the match on a delayed live transmission about 10 o'clock that night on STV. And I sat there, asked if I could stay up late, because at school the next day, staying up late, and I had scarves tied to both wrists, and I watched <laughs> the match, and I was just absolute heaven. It was just amazing. Uh, in fact, I was talking to... I was I was talking to my my wife's uncle yesterday, uh, big town for Barry Hill. Uh, I'd taken stuff up to his house and I was talking around the back, you know, a good a good safe, safe ten feet away from him. <laughs> and I was telling telling him I was doing the story, telling him I was doing the story uh, for the paper. And he says to me, "Oh, he says me and my brother were there. He says my brother never he never made it back for a good few days. He missed the missed the plane. He went. He says, but I remember he says I was sitting next to this wee guy in the plane." Coming back, he says the post. He says they just couldn't wait to get shot every day at the airport. He says they were just throwing everybody on planes. Weren't they checking passports? It was just a continuous stream of planes coming and picking all the Rangers fans up and getting them out of their country and back to Scotland. He says there was this wee guy sitting next to me. He says and we had a baby. He says first of all, he says I remember the, the bar in the airport was open. He says which was strange given what had occurred the night before. In their eyes, he says uh, and we had a wee baby in the wee baby in the airport. He says, and this wee guy, he says, I was I get talking to, he was was quite was quite drunk, quite well known for the night before. He says, and he was, uh, we we got we got to Glasgow Airport. He says, and we get back, and we get off the plane, and the wee guy's looking at me, this vacant look. And I says, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And he says, I've just remembered I drove over to Barcelona. <laughs> 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 and, he'd, and, he'd, and he'd parked his car in this this apparently this massive car park about a mile from the stadium, then went and get drunk, went to the match, get drunk again. Uh, and then flew home. <laughs> so, so God knows if he's, if somebody says in Twitter, there's still a 1972 Cortina sitting somewhere in Barcelona. Uh, but it was, it was, it was great chatting to him about it. And, I, and we had this, there's this, there's this thing about who was to blame for the trouble, and you know the trouble that sort of happened after it. And going through all my old Rangers news, it's quite clear that there was, you know, the fans were in great spirits. I mean, I've been abroad loads and loads of times to see Rangers and I've never really seen any trouble unless the opposition have started it like in Cologne and Porto and places like that. But but the general mood was, was just one of fans having a good time and fun and the locals, mixing with the locals and taking photographs of each other and stuff like that. <laughs> Sounds a bit dodgy. <laughs> and it's, but then after the, after the match, it was an invasion when the fans thought the final whistle went, but it wasn't the final whistle. And then he went back on. But Tam says to me yesterday, he says, he wasn't on the park, but he says that he watched, he was quite near the front. He says, and he watched the pause, were just even when it was the sort of false invasion at first, he says the pause, some of the pause were just whacking fans with their batons. You know, 
And then when they went on the park, it seemed to be that they, you know, they, they all made for nearly nearly dugouts, and within within seconds, the the, the the pitch was just covered, and the polos moved the fans back, and the fans all moved back, thinking, right, they're going to make the presentation mm. on the park, but then when they didn't, and a few of the polos started getting a wee bit eager with their, their battens, then what are you going to do? I mean, it ha- happened to us in Portugal when we got attacked coming out Porto in, I think it was 1981. And you're not just going to take it, you know, you're going to hit back. Mm-hmm. That's what you do, it's human nature. And you hit back, and I think that's what the fans did. And, and, but I always remember going over to Ibrox for the team coming back the next night, pouring rain at Ibrox. And they were coming out, I was getting in Subway for Mary Hill over to Ibrox, and there was a lot of boys with sombreros and stuff on that were obviously had obviously flown back <coughs> into a man. They were they were adamant that they hadn't, they hadn't done much wrong. So it was a bit, it was a bit peeved a week to week or two later when Rangers came out and really, really, really went for the fans. Mm. I um, there was probably blame on both sides, but I think I think a lot of the, most of the fans that went on the park went on the park just with a mixture of excitement and and stuff, no thinking for a moment they were going to be getting whacked with police batons. You know, pitch invasions were sort of normal then wouldn't they? Nah, you know, it wasn't well. just a, it wasn't just after our last minute winner at Ross County, it was it was pitch invasions. <laughs> well well they are the cops. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and I don't think I don't think the fans did too much I wasn't there so I, I can't say but I don't think the fans did too much wrong because they they just wanted to celebrate their team winning the cup after bearing in mind they had been they had been beat just five years before it uh, in the Cup Winners Cup final with Bayern Munich in Germany. And lost another final to Fiorentina, so it was sometime lucky, and they were probably mixed a relief that they'd won a European trophy and you know the rest of it. And, and bear in mind, in the, sem- the night of the semi-finals, I was at that game, Rangers Bayern Munich game. There was eighty thousand there. What an atmosphere! And coming out of the game and hearing that Celtic had unfortunately lost to Inter Milan, you know, and Celtic beat Inter Milan in the final. Uh, in 67 and Bayern had beat us in the final in 67 so both teams got their revenge that night, <laughs> night you know, so it, was, it was great oh, great days the, the, the Spanish police had got previous for that did they not do it in Pamplona as well in 2008 or was it 2008 they've got a lot of previous and there was also somebody mentioned something recently about there was a, a, a potential Catalonia uprising around about that time in the early 70s and it was Franco's police wanted to show show them through the beating of the Rangers fans what they would do to them if they decided to have a wee uprising, you know, so there was maybe dark forces at work there as well. I take it that after that, obviously, you're getting older a wee bit as well, you started to go to Rangers games kind of more frequent, more often, kind of into teenage years and stuff. Oh, I wouldn't miss a game, Scott. I mean, I remember, remember I was going on holiday, I think it was fifth, so I can't remember, the Rangers had the Tenants Caledonian Cup, the sort of pre-season tournament and it was I think it was a Rangers v West Brom game and uh and I hitchhiked back for the holiday to, to get to that game, you know, and we could beat but it didn't matter. And then tried to hitchhike back to whatever we, I can't remember. I think we were on five somewhere, but for a kid that was quite a long a long distance. <laughs> and I remember this guy and on the way back, uh, and on the, on the way on the way the way down, uh, what I did was I hitchhiked down to the game and then stayed with my auntie. And then went back up the next day in the train, and which my mum wasn't wasn't happy about. But I remember getting in this car and asking this guy after a few if he was going to Glasgow, aye. And he had a bottle. I had to move a bottle of whiskey 
have my seat to, so I could sit down. And the guy was quite clearly. But when you went to get iBooks, you put up with these things, you know, and it was way on the road, but we made it in one piece. But I, oh, I would have followed Rangers everywhere, everywhere, home and abroad, you know, as soon as I was old enough. And we went to, I'm trying to think, but it was, it was maybe, it was Dusseldorf. And me and a couple of my pals missed the bus back. We, we decided, we got, we got the, we got the tram from the stadium. We, we went through that night. We think we drew 0-0 and we qualified. Buses were leaving at midnight and we got the tram and never did get off at the buses, apart from me and these other two boys from Mary Hill. We were going into the city centre to celebrate and then we, we thought, we know where we're going. We'll just get a tram back. I thought we have a few pints, but we didn't realise the trams went off at 11. So we got a lift in a Polish motor, but we, we, missed, we missed the bus. And what was, what was actually quite disappointing about that was there was a lot of other Rangers buses, but none of them would take us. So we had to, we had to just we went and slept in the train station that night and then tried to make our way home, you know, the following day. We got home on the Friday, but that time the draw for the next round had been made, and I think it was Rangers v Valencia, and my mate had already decided decided he was selling his mum's hi-fi to get there, you know. So uh, I think he pawned it and got it back at a later date, but he went to that bar. I watched it on the TV, which I thought was a sensible, sensible <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> So you move, you move always on, obviously, get leave school, etc., and become a journalist. How did how did you get into the whole world of journalism, and in particular covering football? I've always always been interested in always been interested in writing, and and even even as a, a nine and ten year old, I would go for with a notepad and pen and write write down all the registration numbers of the cars outside for help. <laughs> but as either sad, or, I don't know if I was working for the <laughs> FBI at the time or something, but it was. I will always, and then I made up a wee, I saved up programs and I made up a program magazine when I was about 10 and which never saw the light of day, obviously, but I just always liked writing. And then I worked on ST, I started STV when I was 16, 1977, January. And a woman that worked in there, her daughter worked for The Sun. So a number of years later, I started covering, I was quite like Speedway as well, and I used to take my son to the Speedway and he started, he started doing the Speedway. So I started covering the Speedway for The Sun and then a couple of years later, I asked if I could cover matches for them. Uh, and I started covering matches for them as well, which I, I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed. And then obviously I had to make a bit of a decision because they wanted me to work every Saturday covering matches. But obviously that meant I couldn't go to, go to see Rangers. So I would go and see Rangers midweek games or Sunday games or and then cover a match on a Saturday. And I did I did really enjoy it. I covered matches at every, every ground. Uh, and then it just kind of took off, took off for there. I think it was, a f- I'd written a book, I'd, I'd, I'd written a book about a football player called Frank McDougall, who played for St Mum, Aberdeen and stuff like that. Uh, and, and Frank and I were kind of brought up together in, in Codder, which is near Mary Hill. I'd moved from Mary Hill to Codder by this time. Uh, and it had a really, really interesting story, apart from the, apart from the goals and, you know, they scored a lot of goals and, Parfait punching Ali Ferguson and knocking him out. He had a he had a really really interesting backstory. You know, he, he had a Codder was quite I don't know if you know, but it's quite a wee sort of housing scheme up next to Mary Hill, and he had he had been coming home for seeing his granny in the hospital one night when he he just been signed the hearts in the nest for him, and he was coming home for the hospital one night seeing his granny, and he get a brick get put through the window and the glass in his eyes, and he was he was. I mean, he was blind for for three months. Well, the doctors didn't see anything for three months, 
Uh, and then he was, you know, he was in, he was in when he was younger, he was part of a, a group that was drinking in a close and he decided he was going home. The others went and broke into a house and eventually killed somebody. And he got, so he sort of walked away from that one as well. His life just seemed to be full of one, one thing after the other. You know, like he's, he's, he told me his mum and dad moved, were moving down to England so his dad could get a job. And he said, I'm going, I'm going to stay with my granny. Uh, and they said, okay, and away they went, <laughs> you know. And I said, what age were you? He went, I think I was six. <laughs> <laughs> he said, so, he said, so I just, I just, I just stayed with her. And it was, it was, it was just, it was just, that was the first time I realised that you could make, because I've always read books and football books, football and music biographies is a thing I like. And that was when I realised that you could make a book quite interesting. And it all depended, it didn't depend on how big the star was, it depended on, what kind of story they had to tell, which is, <clears throat> which might not be a great recipe for selling loads of books, but if you can write a decent story and, and people can get a, a few laughs and a few tears at it, then to me, I know it sounds like a cliche, but that's that's job mm-hmm. done as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And that was why I then I then did decided to write a book on Jock Wallace because Jock Wallace was the first, Jock, Jock Wallace's team was the first sort of team that had brought great success to Rangers that I'd watched, you know, apart from winning the European Cup Winners' Cup at that time. Wally Waddle's team, I, don't know, I think that season they finished fourth or fifth in the league, you know, and, they were, and the crowds were awful at Ibrooks, apart from the really big games. Uh, and and the football wasn't great. And and I, I don't know, maybe that maybe that team would maybe settle, uh, suited better to European football because they, they played some really good teams in 1971-72. In but at home, they just they, they couldn't find any consistency. They were they still had good players, but they just weren't performing. They were they were away down the they were, as I say they were further down the league. So when Jock Wallace when Wally Waddle handed over to Jock Wallace a few weeks after the after Barcelona, Jock Wallace started to really build a team and, and showed how good a manager he was. Uh, and then won won the treble and stuff. And that was the, the sort of first real you know, thrills every week you had watching Rangers, knowing they were probably going to win. And then he was doing it. He was he was doing a great great job. So I decided to write a book about Jock Wallace, uh, and that was the first kind of Rangers related book I did. And I must admit that that process I thoroughly enjoyed. I thoroughly enjoyed tracking down people you know that had been associated with with Big Jock. But my big break came one day when I got a call from a mate of mine, a mate of mine, Bobby Roddy who owns his own cleaning business and who I'd known for, for years and years. Big, big, massive Rangers fan. And he says to me, get yourself to the Hilton. He, he says, I says, okay. I says, I says, when? He says, now. And I says, but I'm not anywhere near it. He went, just get there. I says, I'm at work. And he says, just just leave. <laughs> and I said, right, okay, okay. I says, what's happening? He says, just get here. <laughs> so I... Uh, I started. I started holding my mouth, and my boss says, "What's wrong?" I says, "I just saw all of a sudden get this terrible toothache that's come on," and he says, "Oh, that's that. You said you taking painkillers?" I says, "No, I phoned the dentist. They can see me." He says, "Oh, when?" I says, "Now." <laughs> and he says, "Right away, you go." So I goes up to the Hilton, and the whole Barcelona Bears team was there doing some sort of signing session. Uh, and Bobby says, right, he says, I've spoken to John Gregg, he's going to speak to you. He says, right, okay. He says, and that's good, he says, because John Gregg doesn't speak to him. He says, he doesn't, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't do interviews. 
And I said, right, okay. So I went upstairs, and bear in mind, this is a team I grew up with. It was just, it was just one of the biggest thrills of my life, you know. And and I walked into this room, and there was, in fact, we sat, we sat outside. That we could see into this room where they were all doing their signing. And it was Peter McCloy and Sandy Jarden, you know, uh, John Gregg, Ali McDonald, Tommy McLean, Willie Matheson, and Alfie Cohen. It just went on and on and on. And uh, Colin Jackson's, the late Colin Jackson's wife, Pam, she came out and Bobby introduced me and says, this is Jeff, he's writing a book about Jock Wallace. All right, okay. Who is it you want to speak to? I says, everybody. <laughs> uh, she went, right, who do you want first? I says, and she was bringing, she was, she organised the whole thing. She brought all these legends out for at the time and we sat at this table and I interviewed them and I just, and then, I got them all, and Sandy Jarvis wasn't feeling too good at the time. It was the start of his illness. And, uh, but he was, what, he was an absolute gentleman. He says to me, he says, I'm really sorry, Jeff. He says, I, I, I'm going to go home. He went, but here's my home number. Call me. He says, and I'll speak to you. He was just, he was just such a real gentleman. Measure the man. Oh, God. So I had them all, apart from John Gregg. So Bobby says to me, Pam, is there a door that leads out through that room? Because John Gregg just doesn't like speaking to people. He says, is there a door, a back way out of that room? And Pam says, no, who is it you look? He says, Greggy. And he went, no, he's still in there. He says, I, I don't think he's coming out till you go away. <laughs> <laughs> so I says, Bobby, this is a, you said you spoke to me. He says, I phoned him last night. He says, and he says to me, I'll speak to him. I don't bother. So he, he eventually came out. We sat there for a while and I'm thinking, this dentist appointment's taken. Taking hours, so Gregory eventually comes out and, and he just walks away. And Bobby shouts, "John, John!" I says, "Jeff, I told you." But he says, "You said you were going to speak to me about Joe Wallace, but he went, I can't remember anything about Joe Wallace." And he walked away. So Bobby <laughs> shouts, "John!" So Joe, Bob, I must admit, Bobby was not letting me go. And he shouted, "John, I'm not having this." He went, "Come on!" He spoke. So he walked over, and he says to me, "So I, I put my wee dictaphone on, and he says, <laughs> I, he says, I'm sorry,' he says, but." My memories are blank. I really can't remember anything. I, I'm just, and I thought, you know, I'm not going to get many chances to interview John Gregg, so they come up with something. So I said to him, I says, that's fine, John. I says, I completely understand. I says, I completely understand. I says, it's not a problem. I says, can I just ask you one thing? He went, aye, go ahead. He says, I says, is it true that after the Scottish Cup final, when Rangers won the Scottish Cup to complete the treble, uh, you went in and you threw the Scottish Cup at Jock Wallace and says, here's your trophy, right? He went, and he laughed, and he says, I can't even believe he caught it, eh, being a goalkeeper. <laughs> <laughs> and then 14 minutes later, I had my interview. You know, it, was just, it was just breaking the ice, getting his confidence and speaking to him. Oh. And uh, he, was, he, he, was, he was absolutely great. You know, so that was, that was the biggest coup, getting all these guys. Was just, I went home, and I was just, I didn't know, sorry, I, went back, I remember to go back to work. And... <laughs> I think I I just home because <laughs> I, 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 it's a gas in the other. I think he sent me home because he realised I was uh, I was still in a lot of pain, <laughs> uh, and I went home and wrote up all the interviews, and I was just that was just brilliant. Uh, and then and then I think Davy Mikojohn was next. Uh, I was working at the Record, and they had brilliant archives, and I was well, I was a journalist for the Paisley Express. And we'd been taken over by the same company, Media Scotland, so we were in the same building. And I used to go in, I started at nine in the morning, I used to go in at seven every morning and just go down the archives and, and just, you know, and just, just go through them. And I was doing research on David Miko, John. I, I, was, I was struck by this, this poll that said that John Gregg was the greatest ever ranger. And I completely get that, that you can only vote for somebody you remember seeing. 
and nobody's seen Davy Mikkeljohn. I certainly don't know of any footage that exists of Davy Mikkeljohn playing football. But all, this name had always come up by with historians and people that people that knew that you know dealt, could delve right back into the history of Rangers. And he sounded like a great player. So I started reading up about him every morning and then I decided I would, I would research him, but maybe not do a book. And he just, every report I read, I read, I read sort of 15 years worth of reports, uh, which took me about, maybe a year. Uh, and then realised that my other, my junior team is Mary Hill. You know, I like going to see Mary Hill. Now that I don't go to away games at Rangers, anytime Rangers aren't playing on Saturday, I go and see Mary Hill. So, David Michael John has started at Maryhill. Juniors played one season with him and he transferred to Rangers for £10 in a corrugated iron fence, which they still have. Those parts to the ground, right? <laughs> so, it was a fantastic transfer fee. Uh, so, I started reading up a bit. I started getting more into the David Michael John thing and I, and I realised that this guy was probably, from what, I, from what I knew, probably Rangers' greatest ever player. But we decided to call the book The Greatest Ever Ranger? Question mark. You know the the case for the original Ibrox legend, David Mikkelsen, uh, and I was, I was surprised how much I how much I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. I then realised that I quite enjoyed the research rather than, rather than the, the. I don't mind the writing, but as soon as the book's out, that's it. I just move on to another one. And, uh, in fact, after the Jock Wallace one, one of the guys I interviewed for the Jock Wallace book was Alex Totten, uh, who had been assistant to Jock Wallace at Ibrox for a couple of years. And when I spoke to him about Jock, uh, he took me up to the Falkirk. He, was, he was, still works for Falkirk, uh, another absolute gentleman. And we went up and sat and had a, a bit of lunch and interviewed him about Jock Wallace. He, he told me everything, had lots of photographs. Uh, and then I went away, gave him gave him a card and went away. And he had, he called me up and says, look, he says, maybe I've got a bit of a story to tell. He says, when you're finished that, would you, we could have a chat about it. So I went through to Falkirk again and with a chat and uh, I thought, you know, this is what I was talking about. Maybe maybe not an absolute household name, but what a, a guy that's achieved so much in the game. And then once you start getting into somebody's story, you realise that, you know, they've, got, they've perhaps got a really good story to tell. And Alex had started his, his football career as a kid at Liverpool under Bill Shankly and, and talked about going to the Cavern to see the Beatles and Silver Black and all these things. Uh, and he had so much, so much in his career. Took St. Johnson from the bottom league right up to the, the top six in the SPL. And, and things that I'd forgotten about myself, he told me about the time St. Johnson played Rangers at, at McDermott Park. And it was, uh, he said McCoy's had dived to get a penalty. Now, a few years before that, Tots had been the assistant manager at Rangers and McCoy's was one of his, one of his best pals. You know, he loved him and he says the two of them were, were, were fantastic. He says, but he's shouting at his manager St. Johnson now and he's shouting at McCoy. He's like, hey, go, you cheating wee bastard. You know, and he's shouting and bowling at him. And Walter Smith's in the other dugout and he says, shut your face, you. <laughs> you know, and Tots, and, Tots and Tots and Walter Smith used to go on holiday together. And he went, oh, you shut up, man. Oh, he says, he says you, you can't see anything. There's no Rangers. He went, you can't see, you can't see anything. And he rang with your team and he's shouting and bowling at him. So the halftime whistle blew. He says, and I, I, I was there first. I went into the, I went into the tunnel. He says, and Smith comes in and sparges me right in the back. And he went, shut up you, he says, or you'll get it, right? <laughs> he, says, he says, a scuffle broke it. He says, the two of them are pushing and shoving each other. No punches or anything. Next minute, this, this uh, new match, match police commander, uh, eager young recruit, <laughs> one of Franco's police probably, and he, he grabs the two of them 
and says to this other young policeman, book them. And he says, I can't book them. He says, that's the that's manager of Rangers and the manager of St. Johnson. He went, book them. So Walter Smith having a wee bit of attitude as he does, and talks as well, the two of them are getting into the post and said, ah, we've, got, we've got a talk to you in the dressing room, we've got to go in and so the post grabbed the two of them and threw them out. <laughs> threw them outside and says, that's it. He's suddenly getting back in. So the two of them tried to get back in and the police wouldn't let them in. And they said, but we're the managers. They went, I don't care who you are. They went, you're not getting back in. You've caught, you're causing offence. Now go away. <laughs> so one of the directors, and Johnson directors, came around in his car and took the two of them up to his house where they watched the second half on the, on the TV and had a wee bevy. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it was it was all these things that I'd forgot. In, in fact, I didn't know the the extent of the story. But it's only when you know you you read in the paper that the two managers have been thrown out, blah blah blah. But you don't really know then, you know the ins and outs. And then so Alec Tony had a great story, great great story to. I mean, his his son still, his son and grandson are still season ticket holders at Ibrox, and you know he gets through whenever he can himself, and he's been in tours and all that recently. He just loves the club. You can see what I learned for. He's bust up with Maxu and he's saying spell it out, so he could have been flung out for that. <laughs> that's, that's right, that's right. Aye, aye, he's just, he just doesn't learn his lessons. Does he? <laughs> that's, just, that's just the passion these guys have got for their, for their clubs, isn't it? Uh, so, aye, great, great, great. It was a great book. You know, it was a, I was really pleased with that story as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Alex was really pleased with it and, and you know, it did, did actually did very well and, Went through to the, went through to the, went through to do a, a, wee, a wee signing session in Falkirk. Did quite a lot of signing sessions, but went through to one in Waterstones just before Christmas. And and Alex, you know, he's the, the, the steamy still held in in Falkirk. He got a couple of the boys, uh, Craig, Craig Sibold and Will Vox, to come and do a, a book signing, and they were great. And, and Will Vox says, "You're going to write my book." He says, "When I've achieved something," and the two of them were having banter. So it was, and the fans were just. I mean, the, the steam that Tots has held in Falkirk was just unbelievable. He is a local boy, you know, he's a sort of Denny boy. Uh, and he always, he always he always talked to me. He's always a Rangers fan. He's, he likes Falkirk, but he's always a Rangers fan. He says, he remembers Rangers before they played Falkirk one game. We're, we're, playing in this, uh, we're staying at this hotel, or, or they'd been in the hotel for a pre-match meal. And he'd waited for hours to, to meet the players. I, I'm sure it was Sammy Cox was his hero. He says, and they come out and they ask Sammy Cox for his autograph and Cox just pushed him out the way and says, good, my wife, son. And no one in the bus. <laughs> he says, I've waited there for yours. I said, you must have hated him after that. And he went, no, no. The book of yours that I've read, I've read a couple of them, but the one that I really, really enjoyed and I remember reading it sitting at the pool in Turkey was the Soonest Revolution book. Absolutely fantastic. That was, fin- that was fantastic. But see, just before we... We move on to that. Can I just say one final thing about the Alec Totten book? Uh, one of my favourite programmes was Homeland. And one Sunday night, sitting watching, my wife and I were sitting watching Homeland. Mm-hmm. And it was nearly finished. It was just right at the end of the phone goes. And my wife says in hushed tones, and I says, what? <laughs> it's Alex Ferguson. Sunday night at 10 o'clock. And I says, tell him I'm watching Homeland. <laughs> <laughs> Chase him. I was only kidding, obviously, but, <laughs> and my wife's just about to go, and I said, no, no, I'm not kidding. And he was phoning up because Alec Totten had, had, Alec Totten had played with him at Dunfermline, and uh, had asked him to do the foreword for the book, him and, him and Walter, to do one each, and I'd already spoken to Walter Smith, uh, and this was Fergie phoning the house to give me his thoughts on and, and I thought, you know, but Alec Ferguson at Homeland, what's going to win, you know? <laughs> 
Ready is relentless. Ready is fearless. Ready is fearing no foe. Ready for the next level? Renew your season ticket now and support Rangers into season 2021. Prices are frozen for next season and the renewals deadline is extended. Visit rangers.co.uk slash renew to secure your season ticket today. Always Rangers. Always loyal. I, the the soonest book was the soonest book with the nine, nine that was nineteen eighty six book, wasn't it? That was that was that was enjoyable because that was that was the time, wasn't it? Uh, sadly sadly the, the victim of that was Alec Totten because he, he was at a job Aye, because him and Jock Wallace. Uh, and I remember and I remember I worked in worked on STV at the time and I was working on we were we were building building the Wheel of Fortune set in the studio. Which was a massive thing. It was a, I don't know if you remember that program, but it was a, Nicky Campbell, I think, was and Carol Smiley were presenters. And we were, we were building a set in the studio, and it was just it was a really heavy, heavy, heavy job. And you could you would do anything to get out of it. And Jim White came into the studio, and I was quite pally with Jim at the time. And he said, uh, he said, uh, I'm going over to Ibrox. It was a, it was a sort of Tuesday afternoon or something. I'm going over to Ibrox. It went big job, hush hush. He went, come on. I says I can't just leave. I can't pull the toothache thing again, you know. <laughs> So he went and spoke to my gaffer and he says, okay, if I take Jeff away just for an hour, <coughs> my gaffer, who was an ex-Celtic player who, who was part of the Lisbon Lions squad but never made the made the, the team through injury, he went, aye, okay, on you go, on you go. So the two of us went over and with the camera crew with us. And I said, what, what, what's happening? He went, can I tell you? I says, Jim, we'll be there in about 10 minutes. I says, you wouldn't have to tell me. <laughs> he, went, he went, soon as it's coming. I went, what's he coming for? Right, now this was a this was Jim had Jim had did a documentary on Soonus before but well Soonus was still playing with Sampdoria and he got to know him really well and Soonus says to him, If ever there's any any news, I'll I'll phone you. So he'd phone Jim and says, Look, he says I'm I'm joining Rangers, coming to Rangers as manager, before MDLs knew. And I can't quite remember the logistics of it, but Soonus was come over on a sort of hush hush thing, right? Just just a wee just a wee sort of hush-hush mission. Camera crew were there. We were going to film it. And I think the, the plan was to, to put it in the can. And as soon as, you know, it was just about to be made public, Jim could go with us exclusive. Mm-hmm. So that was fine. So camera crew were in one car, me and Jim, and I think it was a spark with another car. We go over to Ibrox, and who comes to the door to meet us by Alec Totten? <coughs> Excuse me, Scott. And, and uh, we told him why we were there. Obviously, Tots knew that Soonest was arriving that day. Just himself on a hush hush thing. So they, they, he said, Look, Tot says he's, 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 he's been delayed. He's going to be at least another hour if he's wanting to go and get some lunch. And Jim says, I'm no bother. And he says, Well, go up. He says, And Alex says, We'll take you up to the blue room and you can sit in there and wait for him. So th- things like that were, were fantastic that for me, it. you know, and as a supporter. So we went up and sat in the blue room and then Alec Totten left us and we'll just sit and talk. Anyway, it's about 40 minutes later, the door opens and Alec Totten brings in soonest. So there's a, you can imagine the huge presence. So he comes in and he, he sits and he, he in. Up, Jim introduces, this is this is Jeff, the Rangers supporter. Anything you want to know about the club, ask him. And I'm looking at him as if he say, <laughs> what? I just go for a drink then go to the game. So soon as he sits down and we chatted away and he says, well, what, what is it you do? And I says, oh, I work on STV. I says, but I, I run a supporters bus from Mary Hill and Run a, Scot- a supporters team in the Scottish Supporters League. I says, just I've always been a Rangers fan. 
oh, that's great. So he chatted away and he asked me this and he asked me that. And then he, and he, then he said to me, how do you think the fans will react if we sign a Catholic? <laughs> right? Just right out with it, because that was his style. And I said to him, I says, I think, I think a lot of fans will be fine. I says, as long as you don't go signing Mo Johnson or Peter Grant. Right? <laughs> and that was my words. <laughs> then, so then, um, obviously, it never took me to the word. And then fast forward a bit to, to year, year before last. And I was doing the Mark Waters book and Mark wanted, Mark asked them soonest to do the, do the forward. So again, I'm in the house and watching something. The phone goes and it's Graham Souness. Hi, is that Jeff? He says, um, <clears throat> I just, Mark, Mark Waters asked me to call you. He says, just to do a, a forward for the book. I says, oh, that's great. I says, thanks, Graham. Uh, caught me completely unawares. Gets my dictaphone, trying to turn it on, realise there's no battery in it. <laughs> trying to get a battery. And all the time he's, he's talking to me and he's talking about Mark Waters and I'm, no recording it because I'm panicking and trying to get a back and, and I said to Maha, right, okay, yeah. And he says, Is everything okay, Jeff? He says, Have you been taking drugs? <laughs> <laughs> and I says, No, I says, see, to be honest, I'm trying to get a battery for the dictaphone. I says, and it will no work. I says, and now that I've got a battery in it, I says, I'm concentrating that and talking rubbish to you. I says, So I apologize. <laughs> so he laughed and then I said to him, I says, You probably wouldn't remember me. I says, in fact you wouldn't remember me because I've only ever met you once. And I says to him, I says, why should I believe anything you're going to tell me about Mark Walters? I says, when you never believe me that you shouldn't sign more joints. <laughs> <laughs> and he remembered the day. He remembered the day in the blue room when once I told him, and he just laughed and he says, oh, well, he says it broke down a few barriers. Eh? I says, it broke a few barriers and broke a few hearts. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose Mo Johnson's record as a striker for Rangers is pretty good, so I take it soon as was writing that one. <laughs> I, 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 I'll never. It would never make me like Mo. I didn't like Mo Johnson. I never. I, I didn't like him as a. I didn't like him when he played for Celtic, obviously. And I just, I just I didn't warm it. Warm him ever as a person. Uh, I, I, I did well. I mean, I, I was. I remember the goal he scored at Ibrox when he scored in the one 0 when I had a driving lesson that day and had to leave ten minutes early, so I was spared having to cheer. <laughs> so that makes that makes me sound like a crackpot, but I just and I, I never warmed him. Never warmed him. I completely appreciate what he did for Rangers on the park because he was a he was a great wee player. But uh, I just I don't know. I just there's some sometimes there's some people not not because he was a Catholic or anything, just because I just didn't warm him. There's some some Rangers players I've never warmed to either, you know. And mm-hmm. over the years, uh, and you like some more than you like others. And and Alan McCoy was was a man for me. He was he was a main man. Was my and it was quite clear that as soon as soon as liked Haitley and Johnson together. So that meant McCoy's was sitting on the bench when, you know, when... I just think it's hard hard to argue against... Hard, hard to argue for leaving your greatest ever goal scorer on the bench, no matter who's in front of him, but maybe he wanted a different kind of player, you know. And you know, my dad just mentioned that to me there when we were watching... The, it was just on BBC recently, the uh, game against Aberdeen, won 2-0 and Haitley scored the two goals. And, he, and my dad did say to me, actually, by the way, a lot of people didn't like Haitley or had didn't like right. Johnson because they left McCoyst on the bench, usually. That's that's true. That's very true. Haitley, it was a while before Haitley was accepted. And then, obviously, when he was accepted, he was accepted for his, for being a good player, scoring a lot of goals, getting right into people's faces. He, then there was a, the, the carry-on way. You know, because McCoy's by that time was McCoy's wasn't liked at first either. It's <laughs> true. There's a theme, <laughs> uh, and the Rangers support McCoy's, the most fickle. 
Aye. I used to always say Rangers supporters best in the world, worst in the world, because <laughs> you'd sit at Ibrox and you would hear people saying things that you just couldn't fathom it, you know. But but the problem, but no, it's not a problem. We've got, the issue is we've got a big, big, big support, and, and a big, big support always comes a percentage that are... It's not just about no agreeing with you, but it's just some of the stuff you hear. You know, it's just... People used to like Danny Wilson. Can you believe that? <laughs> he was a top prospect. <laughs> Fifteen years. <laughs> uh, I could be. I must admit, I could never see the attraction with him. And, I couldn't see the attraction with any centre backs at Rangers for about ten years. You know, and I, I, I thought I thought Bocanegra was a decent player. You know, but when he left, we were left with just a succession of. You know, and other parts of the team were always getting filled with this, exp- this experience, even when we were down in the third division and second division. And we just always seemed to, I don't know, neglect the centre of defence, for even under Warburton, you know, uh, as well. And yet you always look at Walter's successful teams and Walter's successful teams were always built for the back. Look at the centre-half pair and then built his spine for there. Well, as soon as was the same, wasn't it? I mean, he would, first thing he did was get Butcher, and then you had Graham Robertson, you had Richard Goff, and you had you know, all these players that were just outstanding, you know, and David Weir came in at 70, I think he was. <laughs> so he only came out for six months, too. <laughs> That's right, I <laughs> Ended with a barrel of medals. <laughs> aye, aye. <laughs> Great times. So, wait, wait your book on Soonus, how easy did you find it, kind of, obviously getting some players' views and kind of like coaches' views and just personalities for that time? Just, I just kind of worked hard at trying to do it, Scott. I just, in fact, the only person I ever got was Soonest. I put the feelers out to all sorts of people to to, to, to find Soonest and try and, and, and get a word with him and get his number. Never ever managed it and it was strange, but about a week after the book came out, my son was working, he's a joiner, he was working down in Southampton or Portsmouth, I kind of, I think it may have been Southampton, and he'd, he'd taken a copy of the book down with him, and he met, he bumped into Soonest at the airport <laughs> and said, "My dad's been trying to get hold of you." <laughs> and and Soonest, and he showed him the book, and Soonest says, "That's amazing," and he gave him it, and Soonest says, "Hi," he says, "Get him to phone me, and I'll chat to him about it." And, and Derek looked at the book and went, "It's a bit later," <laughs> <laughs> and he went, "I so was," but but getting. I phoned, I got in touch with West Ham uh, where Chris Woods was a goalkeeper coach and I spoke to the PR man and it was great, you know, did professional agreed time, he phoned me did the same at Carlisle to try and get a hold of uh, Colin West, wanted to speak to guys that were, that I always try and speak to guys that haven't been interviewed extensively before so that you're getting a new a new line and a new okay. approach to, to things uh, and I, I spoke to I spoke to players like Scott Nisbet and stuff. Was that for that book? That might have been the 1992 book. I did two books that were quite similar. I felt 1992-93 was the greatest ever season, so I did a book in that. But used a similar format. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the, but the soonest book, the 1986 book, I, had a mix, I got a mixture of players that played under Jock Wallace because it was, it, was, it, was, it was about the whole year. Mm-hmm. So it, was about, it was, went from January to December and how the fortunes changed in that year. Uh, so under Jock Wallace and, and Jock's second season uh, I spoke to some of the players that had played under him that never really then made it under Soonis and then I spoke to some of the big the big hitters like Terry Butcher and Chris Woodson that, that made it under Soonis and you know and, and I wanted to speak to Graham Roberts but he wouldn't speak to me uh, we got a good mutual friend and I says to him he says he'll not speak to you because he'll not speak about Soonis 
And I says, it's not about Soonis. I says, it's about Rangers in 1986. Mm-hmm. And he went, no, no, no speak to you. Uh, so obviously, he his mind made up. He didn't want to. I mean, he was speaking about Rangers, but that, I didn't understand it because I thought it wasn't about Soonis. You know, it was about it was about Rangers that year and the transformation they'd made going from Jock Walls to Graham Soonis and how, and the sort of difference in the professional professionalism that Soonis had brought in. And, well, with money, you can do a lot. Alex Tottenham always said to me, maybe if they'd given Jock that money, he would have maybe have done something. But Soonis had the contacts, didn't he, abroad and down. He was the name down south. He, I think he attracted players that perhaps Jock couldn't have. The, and getting like Terry Butcher and Chris Woods, which were the first couple, and then Roberts and, and guys like that, and and it, it was, and it really was really good times for us. With you know, and under under Soonis, it was it was fantastic. We got the we got the upper hand back. I just missed it. Oh, that's a shame. Ninety-one, I was born. He <laughs> <laughs> <You> just left. <laughs> well, I was my hero. A <laughs> <laughs> Walter man. He did, he did okay as well, didn't he? Yeah, he did, he did not too bad, to be fair. <laughs> and that kind of takes us on to the 92 season in the book. Aye. Because aye. that's just, that, that's my favourite ever strip and I've actually bought it. Although I was one at the time when it came out, I've actually bought it again to wear now. Because that is... You use your pocket money. That's my... <laughs> so I need to talk about that and get it up to be quite honest. <laughs> <laughs> that size is strip. <laughs> it was one of the ones that hung in the car. Remember the... <laughs> <laughs> Aye, but what a, what a season that was! What was it? Forty four, forty five games unbeaten. It's just it just seemed to last forever, you know. It just it just seemed it was one of these ones that you didn't. I, I personally didn't really fully appreciate it until it was over, and you look back and you think, my God, what we achieved that year, and and the players I spoke to for that for that season, like Ian Durant and Stuart McCollum, uh, a lot of other guys. It was just they were, and Dale Gordon, which was good. Uh, guys that I hadn't spoken to before, they were just, you know, they were looking back on it, say, you know, 10, 15 years later and thinking, Christ, actually, what we achieved, how good a team was that, you know, what, what we achieved was, was phenomenal. Because, uh, very good team, obviously, but I think, I think the biggest, the, 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 the biggest thing they had at that point was their, their passion and their commitment and their, their refusal to, to lie down and accept mm-hmm. defeat. You know, when you look at you just look at the, the matches against Leeds. And I remember I remember going to the first leg. Obviously we weren't allowed in Leeds for the second <laughs> leg, but I remember and I was sitting in the front of Broomwood Road stand just behind the goal and I was there I was there quite early. Uh, I was working in I was on his T V time and I was working in Taggart and I says to the designer, I says, I need to go. We were working late that night doing a night shift and I says, I need to go and look at the next location. And he went, Okay, and I took the van and I went to Highbrooks and I parked it up and Wine Alley and it was actually okay when I came out you know it was still in, I think I paid a wee boy a pound to look after it so I was in the match quite early and I was sitting next to this this guy who built like myself didn't shut up and just kept talking 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 all the time and he was drinking a cup of coffee and I always remember it was Gary McAllister was, the Leeds players were warming up and Gary McAllister had a shot and missed the goal by a couple of inches and smacked this guy right in the face <laughs> <laughs> and the coffee cup went up in the air and it was oh, it knocked him right over Mocked him right over into the guy's lap, sitting behind him, and the paramedics came and took him away, and he never came back. You know, so I always wondered what happened to that. Oh. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, a minute into the game, Gary McAllister hits another one, <laughs> and everybody saw everybody saw a duck. <laughs> we got very accurate at that time, though. <laughs> it was a bit very accurate, and I thought at that point Leeds were a really good team. 
you know, a really good team. And I thought, oh God, this is going to be really difficult now. But to, to come back and to, to, to beat them home and away, I think we beat them home and away, just showed what, showed what we had. And it was one of the guys had pointed out that, he said, when you looked at the, when you looked at the, the characters in that team, you know, your Andy Gorham's, Richard Goff, John Brown, uh, Stuart McCall, Mark Caitley, all these players, they were all just, you know, they had this, this real passion. And I remember speaking, I remember interviewing Archie Knox uh, for that book and, put, and putting that question to him and saying, in fact, we were having, we, we had, I met him in a, a wee cafe and we had breakfast and he was, he was com- too busy complaining about the toast being burnt. <laughs> To listen to me, so I had to say it again. And I said, Archie, did you hear me? This is a bloody disgrace, this toast. <laughs> How long was it in for? And I says, Archie, hi, <laughs> son. And I said to him, I says, you know, I says, one of the, and Archie knocks himself, he's quite, quite a hard guy, and so is Walter. I says, that team was just full of, not, not so much hard men, but guys, guys with real character. I says, who was the, who was the hardest player in that, in that squad? I says, was it Haley? Was it, you know, John Brown, Goff, he went, hardest player, he says, the hardest, toughest, mentally toughest and physically toughest player I've ever played with, ever managed or coached was Ali McCoist. And I kind of looked at him, I says, Ali McCoist, I says, we coisted it like a joke. He went, hard as nails, he says, legs made of steel. He said, Runs it, run, run about the training pitch like a man possessed. He says, you would tack-. he says, I tackled him a couple of times playing bounce games, he says, and bounced off him. He went, he was <laughs> solid, solid, Hated to lose. Start a fight in a minute if you were in his face, you know, doing something wrong. He says, great guy. Absolutely brilliant guy. Loves a joke. He went, but took his football so seriously. Uh And I was really surprised at that because I was thinking he was going to say Bomber Brown or Uh Ian Ferguson or McCall or one of these guys, but no, it was McCoyst. And that just summed up for me that virtually the whole team was, you you weren't going to mess that team about. You know, you weren't and they could play. They could play football. They had, they had a great defense, great goalkeeper in Gorham, great defense, great midfield that would work all day. They created with Durant and stuff, and guys that could score goals. And that's to me, that's a that's ultimate team. Isn't it? Oh, so guys that could go down to Leeds and win, you know, and beat Leeds up here, and go in that amazing run and and win the win the treble and almost should have maybe should have won the European Cup. Uh, about. Was, was it that book? It may have been in, I can't remember it, but it was a 1986 book. And I spoke to a, a former Rangers director who interviewed him for it and who will remain nameless because he asked me <laughs> to keep him nameless. And he said to me that on the, the night before the Rangers-Marseille game at Ibrox, the 2-2 game, he said the, the Rangers always hosted the, the, the opposition directors in the, in the blue room and they had a meal he says, and we had a we had a meal. He says, and I was sitting facing Bernard Tappy, the Marseille chairman. He said, and halfway through the meal, he said to me, "Can I have a word with you outside?" He says, "Aye, okay." He says, and they were standing at the top of the marble staircase, and Tappy had his back to the marble staircase, and he turned round and says, "I'm just talking about the match tomorrow night." He says, "Can I just ask what's more important to Rangers Football Club? Is it is it points or is it you know cash?" And this director says. Where's this conversation going? He says, I've got a fair idea where it's going. He says, well, it's just that we're a very rich club. He says, and if perhaps you were to maybe not try as hard as you could, he said, we could make sure that. And the director said to me that he told Bernard Tappy, he says, uh, he says, there's three options here. He says, you can walk down these stairs and leave right now and say, not say another word about this, 
or you can turn around and go back in and finish your meal and then go back to your hotel. He says, or I'll boot you down these stairs. <laughs> he says, and I said, directors actually speak like that, didn't they? <laughs> he, says he, he says he chose to go back in and finish his meal. He went, but there's absolutely no doubt he tried to bribe us. Absolutely no doubt. Shocking. Uh, and the, as I said, they bribed CSK Moscow, who were a decent right. team, and who, who lost 6-0. I think in France, and you think to yourself, you know, it's 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 a shame that we were robbed of that because perhaps should have been in the final, uh, you know. And that you can't you you can't say for a minute that AC Milan are a big name, but so are Rangers. Uh, and we had we had a great chance of beating AC Milan in that final, like Marseille did. You know, uh, Marseille couldn't beat couldn't beat us over two games. So I feel a bit robbed about that one, Scott. Just going back to what you said as well about the. The kind of never say die attitude of that team. I always remember listening to Richard Goff, and it was just recently actually, and he said that they went to places and like during the warm up at Parkhead or at Leeds at Elland Road, etc. They'd be saying to each other, "There's no way we can we can lose here. Losing is no an option. There's just no way it can happen." And he said that as as time went on, you just then believed that within you and knew you've got a team that just could dominate India in front of them. And I suppose we're kind of lacking. That's probably the most thing that we're lacking on uh, nowadays, you know? Well, that's, to me, that's, that's one of the most important qualities any team can have because I'll go back to the Frank McDougall book. When McDougall signed for, signed for Aberdeen from St. Murn, he says to me, we were going to, going to play at a... Because Ferguson had been the manager of St. Murn and then left to go to Aberdeen and then he'd re-signed McDougall for Aberdeen. He says, and we're on the bus and we're, we're rolling up at Ibrooks. We went and it's all Rangers fans everywhere. And McDougall said, ah, can I put my head? He was a Celtic fan. He said, can I put my head down? And a lot of the players put their head down, you know, as if to say, look at this, there's thousands and thousands of Rangers fans here and we're going to be up against it today. He says, and I remember uh, we were in the dressing room and Ferguson named the team. And he said, gave a team talk, quite a quite a decent, you know, rousing team talk, like, we can win this today, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. He went, now go out and get a kickabout on the park. He says, and the players, we all went out to the park and there was a sign on, sign on the pitch saying, keep off the grass. Right, mm-hmm. uh, and there was a, a, a section under the main stand at that time where the players were supposed to warm up, but it was concrete and they just did some stretching and you know light ball work and stuff. He said, McDougall says we went back into the dressing room and Ferguson says, "What are you doing? Get back out there and warm up." He went, "The groundsman's told us to stay off the grass, and there's a sign." And Ferguson marched out apparently and booted the sign right off the ground. <laughs> and says to his players, "Go on." And walked up to the groundsman and says, "Have you got a problem with that?" And he said, "No." <laughs> And that's what that's that's where this this attitude and this mentality comes in because then the players start believing that if their manager's invincible, they can be invincible too. Yep. And it comes down for like Walter and Archie giving out that message, you know, and to Goffey, the captain, and all these guys. And as you say, they they kind of they, they said we're not losing this game at Leeds or mm-hmm. Celtic, whatever it was. Right. No fans. And and that's it. Just shows how important that is. That is. It's, 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 it's how much percentage of the game is actually mentally, do you know what I mean? Aye. But obviously, mo- moving on a wee bit, and, and you were asked to write the book on Rangers' greatest victories against Celtic. Aye. Now, I'd imagine that would have been a hell of a decent book to research and <laughs> write. <laughs> well, well what, what, was, it was, what happened was there was, I was working on, I can't remember what book I was working on, but I, was, I think I was working on Mark Walter's book, I think. And publisher got in touch with me and says, there's a, a guy being in touch with us when he write a book about Celtic's 50 greatest victories over Rangers. I says, that'll take him a while. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, 
and I've said I'll do it, but only if you do one. The Rangers' greatest victories, and I said, right, okay, I'll take, I'll take four or five months off what I'm doing just now, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll do that. Obviously, I've been at loads of the, loads of the, loads of the matches, uh, but going back, you want to, it's got to be a, a fair reflection of the whole history. So mm-hmm. I went, then went back to my first, my first win in eighteen ninety three, I think it was, and I learned so much about the club, learned so much about the players. It was it was fantastic. I just I loved it, and I was talking to Craig Houston one day, Craig Houston from Sons of Truth, and Craig says to me, he says, "What are you working on?" And I told him, and he says, "Oh, who who's the guys that are in that?" I says, "Well, the guy who scored the first the first ever goal for Rangers against Celtic in the for a Rangers victory it was a guy called John Barker, and he says, "His great grandson plays for us," and then we spoke about a guy called James Walls, Fister Walls. His grandson plays for him as well. And David Provin's grand, the Rangers David <laughs> Provin's grandson plays for him as well. And I thought, that's amazing that this, Aye. you know, we're going back to the first ever competitor of Rangers victory over Celtic and his family's still involved with Rangers. That's and, nuts. It, and, you know, you, you, see on, you see on Twitter and you see on these things, oh, the Rangers family and the Rangers family, which is great. But that really is, isn't it? That Aye. really is when you, when you think it. Because it is, it's a, my dad's a Thistle fan, but I'm probably one of the few it's a it's a sort of hand me down thing, isn't it? Whereas my son, my son's now a massive Rangers fan, and my grandson's a massive Rangers fan, and I'm hoping my other grandson's going to uh, ditch the All Blacks for Rangers as well because <laughs> he's his mum from New Zealand, from New Zealand. But but it really is, and it's and and it's it's just mad. it sounds like cliche, but it's just mad. when I go to a game with my grand, my son and my grandson, it's just there's nothing Aye. better. Aye. You know, there's nothing better, and you just know that this club has been in that area. No, there a few grounds, early grounds, but that Rangers has been in the, in the same area for over a hundred years, and you think it's just you're just doing your wee bit, helping you do. going on. Yeah, and, it's what you I know, do. Uh, but the, the old firm, the old firm was it was good because I learned more so because I, I loved the research and I learned so much about learned so much about the club going through all the old newspapers and getting and then finding out all about the. To be fair, the Ali McCoists of that era because. The guy, uh, Robert Cumming Hamilton, who, who went by the name of R.C. Hamilton, which obviously didn't mean an awful lot of them. And he was, he was Rangers' greatest, he's Rangers greatest goal scorer in all Firm games. And apparently was, I think he went on to become the, the, the Lord Provost of Elgin or something. But uh, he, he was apparently a fantastic player. And I started reading up a bit more on him and the personalities of the era. And then you, you take it right through you know, into the, the, the early 1900s and then the, the, the pre-war years, which I knew a wee bit about because of David Mikojohn uh, and research and Sam English and, and doing that sort of thing, right up to the team before the war and after the war and in between in between when we when we beat Celtic 8-1, which, uh-huh. which, and then we won all the leagues during the war, which, which I think should have been awarded to us. Uh, and then right from the... Right up to the fifties and the early sixties, and your characters like George Young and Jimmy Miller and Ralph Brand, I learned so much, and that was that was the biggest thing I took out of it. And I hope that MD that read it, you know, could learn a wee bit about the personalities that have gone because because you know we're, we're, we've got such a really have got such a proud history and, and such a long history, and and these guys are all just as much a part of it as yep. the guys today. Yeah, definitely. You know, Obviously, I'm conscious of the time as well, and I've taken up a wee bit sure. of your time today. Um, you're writing about just now on 
Sam English, we've not even touched on Marco Negri, we've not even touched really Mark Walters. <laughs> um, I know you're writing about the now on Sam English and done a wee bit of kind of research on, obviously I know a lot about the incident, but I take uh-huh. it from your point of view, it is about this guy, Sam English, got a kind of bad press eventually from that tackle and unfortunately the guy passed away for the tackle, sadly, but you're kind of writing it from his point of view. Well, absolutely. I just, just, just his whole, just his whole life and life and career, you know. And and again, it's it allows me to go back and delve into the archives and and learn more about more about the club, which which I love. And I I grew up thinking if I've, I I didn't know an awful lot about Sam English when I grew up, and maybe the first time I heard his name was is that the guy that killed John Thompson? You know, somebody would say, and it's and it's no. And it's not bad mindedness and that, it's just really ignorance or lack of knowledge or you know that we're all guilty of. And in time as you got older you think and especially when I was doing the David Michael John book, you know, Sam English played at the same time as Michael John. And he was he was obviously he was obviously a massive, massive uh, player for Rangers at that time because he'd come out of the juniors and scored scored forty four league goals in thirty five games, I think it was. You know, seven goals in his first two Scottish League games. It's just wow. an MD's book. It's, it's, it's mental, mental. And then the, 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 the incident happens with John Thompson, which there is footage on on the on the internet on YouTube. It happens fast, but you can and you can quite clearly see. And also, also I've got the, the sort of testimony from the, the whole testimony from the fatal accident inquiry, and also testimony from a cameraman from the Daily Express that, that did it. The Rangers trainer who come on and, and everybody that's seen it. Uh, said that he just, you know, John Thompson had one thing that John Thompson did a masterclass in the in the Sunday Mail the week before it, and ironically, and said, uh, if a goalkeeper's going to come out and try and shut somebody down, the, the worst thing he can do is hesitate. And ironically, he hesitated on his six-yard line, stopped only for a couple of seconds, and then ran out. But that time, just inside the box, but that time, English has tried to put the ball around him. It's come off uh, John Thompson's shoulder. Went by the post about three or four feet, uh, and and John Thompson's momentum was carried him into the inside the English's knee, and he's 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 unfortunately you know tragically broke his broke his skull and and uh, and then died about four hours later in the hospital. Uh, and I found an interview with Sam English in uh, in the Daily Express, nineteen sixty three Daily Express, which was serialised over four days. The only time he had ever spoken to the press in his entire life. And it just gave me such a good insight into, into how he thought about things and how he's how he's like. I could I could never work out how he could that could happen to him. Some I think it was seven seven games into his career maybe because he missed two games with injury earlier on, and and how he could then go in and score loads of hat tricks and finish the season with fifty three goals all in, and then fall away so badly. But it happened every it happened at every club he went. In two seasons, second season he was he just lost. Completely lost the plot, lost interest, and he said in the interview that if he was playing against a, a sort of brave, daring goalkeeper, he just he just right. retracted and didn't he, didn't he go after the ball? Aye, so there was a, there was a bit of me wanted to kind of redress the balance about about the Sam English John Thompson incident. Uh, John Thompson's family had nothing but you know love for Sam English, and they just they, they wrote letters to him and they sent him a telegram before a match against Partick Thistle, wishing him all the best. I mean, sincerely hoping that his life wouldn't be affected by it. But 
there was a, there was a comment by Willie Maley at the Fatal Axe Inquiry when he was asked if it was an accident, and he said, "I hope it was an accident." You know, and that really didn't help. Didn't that help. Was, that was, and the thing is, Maley was Maley was really friendly with Rangers. The, the Rangers and Celtic weren't massively friendly at that time, but Maley would always come into the dressing room and, and say, "Well done to you, the whole or the, or the team." I think it was maybe he, maybe he'd cry somebody for one slip of the tongue or one thing he said. Mm-hmm. I think if you knew the fallout that was going to cause, I don't think he'd have said it. Mm-hmm. You know, but I don't know what was in his head at the time. So, Aye. all we can all, all you can do is then look at the evidence that's there, look at what happened, and and I spoke to Sam English's uh, son-in-law, who's who's in his late eighties, and he said that he said that busloads of Celtic fans used to go down to Liverpool when Sam was playing for Liverpool, and even down to Queen of South, and even down to Hartlepool after it, and, and just shout murder at him and shout. He says he, he couldn't take it anymore. You know, he was he was really struggling, uh, and his his career was he, he would have been if he if that if that a big if isn't it? But if that I hadn't know. happened to him, he could have he could have been on to become he could have he would have been on to set a record that Alan McCoy would never get near Aye. because because at that time when he moved from junior football to to Rangers, junior foot the standard of junior football was very high. You know, according to Sam and according to a lot of other people, the standard was really really high, <clears throat> and he scored. He scored something like he says two hundred and ninety-seven goals in three seasons. That's just ridiculous. You know, it's amazing. I think it was more nearer maybe two hundred and sixty, two hundred and seventy. But even that, you know, if he scored ninety goals a season, mad. And then you know he scored six and seven in, in games against teams like Peter's Hill and Pollock, who are big, still big, big teams. And then he, he proved that he could he could take the step up, and he he could move on to the next level. And he because he scored all these goals for the Rangers. After that accident, I think he lived in. I think he sort of lived in sympathy for the rest of the people. He started to to wane. And saying that, his next game against Celtic, after a few weeks later in the class part time, he did get kicked about the park a bit. So, I think sympathy sympathy came from some, but not the not the masses, the silent, not not the the, the loud. Aye, minority. Aye. Like made his life made his life hell. As is the case in every walk of life, isn't it? Aye. Well, aye. Jeff, I don't really want to take up any much more of your time because I am delighted that you spoke to us. The knowledge is because I've got lots to do during this lockdown, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, you're writing a book. <laughs> aye, well, finished. Your, your, your knowledge of the club is frightening, to be quite honest with you. Um so Again, I think we could have you back on at some point to talk about the rest of your books we've not even mentioned. <laughs> Part two. <laughs> Part two. So thanks very much, Jeff, for joining us and uh, all the best. Stay safe. An absolute pleasure, Scott. Thank you very much. Thank you. Rangers, Rangers, easy, okay. Okay. Look out, everyone, we're on our way. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.